Hello and welcome to The Napoleon Assist. Today's episode is another one based around my own current research interests and I'll warn you now is going to be a long one. So grab a pair of slippers, get yourself hot chocolate and get comfy. I want to start this episode with a couple of warnings actually. Normally when historians give talks they discuss the end result of a research process. The archival research has been done, the data sifted and the conclusions reached. This however is an active project. I want to show you the organic nature of what research looks and feels like for those of you who aren't necessarily familiar with that process. I want to show you the blind alleys, the frustration, but also the flashes of excitement that come from realising that certain things are falling into place. As you'll see, this is a compelling project that transcends history, archaeology, science and even memory to reveal the very human nature of the impact of war. The other warning I need to give you is about content. As the title of this one suggests, this talk is about human remains. Over the next 45 minutes or so, I'll therefore be discussing battlefield injury and human bones, so this isn't necessarily one for younger listeners or the squeamish amongst you. So here we go. The Bones of Burgos. The life, death and resurrection of Wellington's forgotten unknown warriors. Oddly for the Napoleonicist, my starting point today is not actually with Napoleon, or with France, or even the early 19th century. Instead, I want to start at the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior in Westminster Abbey. As the name suggests, the identity of the man underneath that slab is unknown. The soldier was picked at random from four candidates amongst the thousands of men killed during World War I whose bodies could not be identified. He was brought back to London, whilst the remaining three were reburied, although there is dispute and controversy over the possible lack of dignity of that reburial for the others. That soldier remains a hugely important symbol in Britain's commemoration and memorialisation of those killed in conflict over the last century. The concept behind the Unknown Warrior is, quite simply, that in a time when it was deemed impractical to transport the thousands of war dead back to the UK, this one soldier could become a focal point for national mourning in the wake of the Great War. Around 700,000 British soldiers were killed during World War I, leaving millions with no prospect of visiting the graves of their loved ones. This one soldier, whose unknown identity meant that he could have been the, relevant, the relative of so many of those who visited his grave, was therefore given one of the highest honours this nation can offer a grave in Westminster Abbey amongst the nation's monarchs, commanders, scientists and literary greats. The tomb is the only grave, the only one set in the floor of the abbey, which no one, up to and including the Queen, may step on. Thousands of people walk on Charles Darwin's tomb without even realising he's there, because the audio tour actually starts after Darwin's tomb, so you have to go back and see him. You can barely avoid stepping on the tombs of Charles Dickens and Lord Byron in Poet's Corner, but the unknown warrior will never be walked over. Alongside the cenotaph, memorials across the country and of course the poppy, the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior has become an integral part of how Britain remembers the dead from conflicts since 1914. Both world wars and the many conflicts since have, for obvious reasons, become deeply ingrained in the national psyche. Yet what of those who died before 1914? If I were to ask most people about the Crimean War, the Seven Years' War, the War of Austrian Succession, or yes, the Napoleonic Wars, most would probably struggle to fill a single sheet of paper 
with what they knew about all four. Yet all of those conflicts affected multiple continents. British troops fighting in the Crimean War actually had a higher mortality rate, 23%, compared to 11.5% for World War I. The Napoleonic Wars, meanwhile, has been termed the First Total War, and until the War of 1914-18 occurred, was popularly referred to as the Great War. Beneath battlefields across the world, the dead of these conflicts lie in unmarked graves, corners of a foreign field which, in the words of poet Rupert Brooke, are forever England. Men, sons, brothers, husbands, fathers, who fought and died for their nation, lying forgotten, with virtually no prospect of being found, except by chance. And one such chance occurred in the summer of 2008, when the remains of some soldiers were found outside a fortress in the town of Burgos in Spain. I'll come on to explain why there are debates over how many they actually found in a moment, but before we go on, it's worth saying a few words about the events that led up to these men's death and putting it all within historical context. The Siege of Burgos is a comparatively little-known episode of the Napoleonic Wars. British troops were first spent, sent to Spain and Portugal in the summer of 1808, when Napoleon Bonaparte, at the zenith of his power, decided to stab his ally in the back by occupying the country whilst also invading one of Britain's last allies, Portugal. Over the next six years, British, Portuguese and Spanish troops fought the French occupiers in a conflict that ebbed and flowed across the Iberian Peninsula in what became known as the Peninsula War. The best known, though by no means the only uh, campaigns, were fought by the British and Portuguese forces under the Duke of Wellington. By the start of 1812, the conflict had descended into a stalemate along the Spanish-Portuguese border, with the French occupying the majority of Spain, but being unable to dislodge Wellington's men from Portugal. On the Spanish side of the border, the French held the vital fortresses which guarded the main roads into the heart of the country, Ciudad Rodrigo and Badajoz. In a lightning-fast campaign which lasted 11 days, Wellington's men seized Ciudad Rodrigo in January, but Badajoz took longer to capture, falling in early April. A major victory over French forces um, of around 50,000 men at the Battle of Salamanca on the 22nd of July opened the route into the heart of Spain and the British liberated Madrid on the 10th of August. Yet occupying a central position in the heart of Spain brought as many problems as it did opportunities for Wellington. The French had around a quarter of a million men deployed throughout the country, being used to deal with Spanish rebels. By occupying Madrid, Wellington was in the middle of a Napoleonic sandwich, with French forces to the north, south and east of him, though those at Valencia were kept occupied by another British expedition. If Wellington struck south, the forces in the north could attack him in his rear, and vice versa. Wellington's ingenuity seemed to desert him over the following months, although in fairness the situation that he faced was almost impossible to solve decisively. He decided to strike again at the force which he had defeated at Salamanca, which was regrouping around the town of Burgos. The French commander withdrew, leaving a force in the fortress above the town. To advance, Wellington had to take that fortress, and so the siege of Burgos was forced upon him. The siege, though, to be blunt, was a complete pig's ear, and yes, that is a technical historical term. The British had just three siege guns, one of which had actually had parts missing from previous engagements, and so was nicknamed Nelson by the men after the Admiral who'd lost an arm in service before being killed at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. The French force in Burgos was relatively small, at around 2,000 men, 
Without the correct equipment, though, breaching the fortress was exceptionally difficult. Sitting on a rocky outcrop about 200 feet high, the defences had recently been improved by the French. Historian Roy Muir has suggested that, with the right tools, the castle could have been taken in a week. In the end, Burgos never fell. Wellington himself wrote in a letter, I doubt that I have the means to take the castle, which is very strong. Historians still question why he pursued the siege, and didn't just leave a covering force to trap the garrison inside before moving on. Whatever the truth may be, from the 19th of September the siege began with British troops suffering from the fact that they lacked the siege artillery to give them the support that they needed. The Hornwork, a defensive position to the north uh, of the fort on high ground, was stormed that night and was captured, but cost the British 421 dead and wounded. Three days later, an attempt was made to surprise the garrison and storm the city, use, storm the fortress rather, using ladders in what is known as an escalade. It failed, and an attempt was therefore made to dig tunnels to undermine the defences and blow them up using mines. When the mine was blown, though, on the night of the 29th of September, it emerged that the tunnel was actually a few feet too short, and although the wall did collapse, the damage was not as extensive as the British had hoped. The storming party, which had been sent to take advantage of the surprise, and therefore storm the wall in the process, got lost in the dark and withdrew, thinking that the mine had completely failed. The outer wall eventually fell on the 4th of August, when a further mine was exploded at a second location, and the outermost wall uh, was successfully stormed. Yet the British were never able to force their way into the centre of the fortress, due to the determined resistance of the French garrison. Charles Cox, widely regarded as one of Wellington's most promising protégés, was killed in a counter-attack by the French garrison on the 8th of October, and further attacks, particularly on the 18th of October, by the British failed. With French forces from southern Spain having abandoned their hold on the region in a bid to march north and encircle him, Wellington was forced to raise the siege on the 21st of October and hurriedly retreat, a manoeuvre which eventually saw the British army back on the Portuguese border. Losses for the British at Burgos were significant. 509 dead, 1,555 wounded or missing, compared to a French casualty list of 623. But Burgos cannot be described as a crucial episode of the conflict, although it is noteworthy for the fact that it is the only time that a French force outwitted Wellington. Perhaps that very fact is the reason why only two books have been written about the siege in recent times, one by Carol Duval and the other by Charles Esdell and Philip Fremantle. Yet Burgos acquired fresh, though little-known significance, with the discovery of six sets of human remains in the summer of 2008. In the course of municipal work to explore the options of creating a pavement beside a road, six skeletons were uncovered. This is rare. Although hundreds of thousands of men were killed across the Napoleonic Wars, finding their resting places is very uncommon. Last year, the discovery of a pit of severed limbs from the field hospital behind the British position at Waterloo was considered a major discovery, such as the rarity of these finds. Equally, when the, new, the foundations for the new museum on the Waterloo battlefield were being dug, the discovery of a single soldier killed by a bullet to the lung was considered so significant that his remains have been put on display in the museum. If limbs or solitary skeletons are remarkable, you can well imagine the importance of finding multiple casualties of this conflict. So what do we know about these individuals? All of them are male and were found in relatively close proximity to each other, the fact that some were found at the edges of the trenches that were being dug 
is significant and is something that I will come back to later as its implications dominated one phase of the planning for this project. The men are numbered in the order that they were discovered. Individual 1 is a more or less fully intact skeleton aged between 15 and 23, 1.69 metres tall, that's 5 foot 6 inches, and would have weighed somewhere in the region of 66 kilograms, that's 10 stone 6. Straight away from the position of his remains, you're able to discern quite a lot about the human face of war. We can't be certain at the moment about the cause of death. His, his remains need a full examination in a lab for that to be determined accurately. But his posture is pretty su suggestive. Our best guess at the moment is that he may have been caught in an explosion of some sort, throwing his arm up over his face to cover his uh, head from the blast. Sometimes people would consider that to be cool. I disagree. That's not cool. It's tragic. Because what we look at when we look at the photograph of his discovery is we look through a window into that individual's final seconds. This person is a young man, certainly not into his mid-twenties. Someone's son, possibly a brother, maybe even a husband and a father. It's doubtful that he enlisted due to patriotism. We know that relatively few soldiers during this period signed up for king and country usually signing up when times were hard and they were in need of money and a regular meal. Yet when sent overseas, they went, and this individual paid the price. For those historians, and sadly there are plenty of them out there, who forget that numbers of killed in battle statistics represent individual people, there's nothing more sobering than coming face to face with the horrible realities of war. Images like that strip all the illusions of glory from war and remind us of the importance of recognising and respecting the sacrifice of every individual. Individual 2, on the surface of things, looks the least remarkable. We have a fragment of a tibia, almost certainly male, and the likelihood is that the individual weighed about 70 kilos or 11 stone. I'll be coming back to individual 2 though, because on closer inspection, he's quite intriguing. Individual 3 is a near-complete skeleton, aged 22 to 24, and 1.72 metres high, that's 5 foot 8 inches, and weighing 74 kilos, or 11 stone 9. He's missing his lower left arm and parts of his right hand, but we can pretty, be pretty sure that that wasn't the cause of his death, as the top of his skull has a hideous wound to it, which would have been caused by a shell fragment. Shells during this period were essentially spheres filled with gunpowder and fitted with a fuse. They were designed to split into a handful of fragments when they exploded, with obviously pretty horrendous results. This guy's death would have been instantaneous. Number three is also quite interesting due to the artefacts found around his body, uh, including some small fragments of a musket and the buttons of both the 83rd Regiment and the French 65th. Individual four is the one that I personally called the mysterious child. He's aged just 16 to 18. I'll repeat that. 16 to 18. He's a child. No offence to the 16 to 18 year olds who might be listening, but his life had barely begun, and yet he'd already signed up, gone out to Spain, and been killed. We can be pretty certain that he was from the 58th Regiment, as almost 20 buttons from that regiment were found around his body, indicating that he was buried in his uniform. We don't know his cause of death, though the fact that his head is missing, uh, along with the neck vertebrae and the left arm, may well give us an indication. Why is he mysterious, though? Well, underneath his body was found a shovel, which suggests that he was left where he fell. 
These were valuable tools which could not afford to be left behind, so if he had been moved for burial, the shovel should have been seen and picked up. As I'll explain, though, all is not quite what it seems. Individual 5 is in a bad state. He has no arms, no left leg, and only the femur of his right leg. With so many limbs missing, it's difficult to be certain of his age, but his body is sufficiently developed to indicate that he made it out of teenagehood, though he could be anywhere between 21 and 46 years of age. He weighed 73 kilos, that is 11 stone 8 pounds, but the lack of limbs is not his cause of death. Inside his cranium, archaeologists found a musket ball from a French calibre musket, and you can actually see the entry wound on the side of his skull, which would have caused instantaneous death. Perhaps there is a small consolation then in the fact that he certainly wouldn't have suffered. Individual 6 presents us with a bit of a mystery. The remains, quite simply, are a solitary right arm. They were found directly next to individual 5 on his right-hand side. But there's a catch. The arm was in the grave the wrong way round. The shoulder blade was by the hip and the fingers by the collarbone. We can't explain uh, that whole scenario without detailed lab analysis, although it is possible that either immediately before or after death his body was caught in an explosion. My gut says that five and six are the same guy, but until we get them into a lab and we do relevant analysis, we can't know that for sure. So that summarises what we initially knew about these men. Sometimes colleagues ask me how do we know that these are soldiers and not just scavengers who had picked up the buttons and died in those locations. Well, for one thing, their injuries and what was found around them are highly indicative. Bullet wounds, severe head trauma, digging tools, along with bullets and cannonballs, all were found uh, during the dig and all are consistent with the sorts of things we would expect of soldiers, especially those involved in a siege. It's one of those cases of, if it looks like a dog, acts like a dog and sounds like a dog, it's probably a dog. Equally, the location is crucial. We're talking here about a stretch of ground immediately outside the site of the second of the two breaches. You have a wall on one side and a sheer cliff on the other. For five civilians to die in such confined area would be astonishing. Amongst other things, there is limited reason for them to be there. And then finally, you have to factor in human nature. If these were scavengers, they had to be locals. If they were locals, they had family who would have gone out looking for them uh, and not just left them where they fell. Equally importantly, they would have been Catholics, and the idea of them being buried on unconsecrated ground would have been unthinkable for their relatives when there was a perfectly serviceable churchyard in the town. Quite simply, they just wouldn't have been left there. That's not to say, however, that these men are definitely all British. Some could well be Portuguese soldiers serving with the army, or there's a remote chance that they could be Spanish labourers. As I've mentioned already, the nationality of Individual 3 remains an open question, given that he has a button of the British 2nd Battalion 83rd and the French 65th on his body. And it was that that made me start to look a little deeper, and which offered the first warning signs that some of the things we thought we knew didn't quite add up. In an effort to try and narrow the list of names down for Individual 3, I started looking at the casualty returns for the 2nd Battalion 83rd held at the UK National Archives in Kew, relating to the period that we're looking at. They are pretty specific about the nature of death. What's particularly important is that there is a distinction in the language used. Killed referred to death in action, 
and was often followed by a clarifying comment about where the individual died. Died, on the other hand, in the context of these returns, meant that the individual had passed away due to illness or due to wounds received in combat. As the wounded were removed to field hospitals behind the lines, they would not have been transported back to the front for burial outside the breach at Burgos, and can therefore be eliminated from the search. Yet in the returns for the 2nd Battalion 83rd, there is no mention of Burgos, and in fact the number killed, or perhaps put more accurately, killed in action, is zero. In fact, when you look at where the 2nd Battalion 83rd were deployed, they weren't actually anywhere near Burgos. They were in a part of a force that was deployed about 30 miles away to keep an eye on French forces in the region. There is almost no reason for a soldier from that unit to be at the siege, far less be caught up in the storming of a breach to then be killed. What is just possible is that he might have been a servant for an officer, but the casualty re returns dispel the doubt. If one of their men had been killed at Burgos, the returns would reflect it. The only possible conclusion is that that individual is not from the 2nd Battalion 83rd. He was quite simply a button holder, and that therefore means that he could be French, although that isn't something that we can prove without detailed scientific tests. With the archaeology seemingly, seemingly leading us down one rabbit hole, I started to look at what else might be wrong, and the deeper I dug, the more inconsistencies began to stack up. The first one that started to really worry me came with individual two, the leg fragment of the tibia. The information available to me at the time was talking about a single fragment, yet looking closely at the photos from the dig, it was quite clear that part of a different bone could be seen sticking out of the side of the trench. I had a garbled translation from the original archaeology report which someone had stuck through Google Translate about a decade earlier, but the text, although almost unintelligible, is worth me reading to you. Of skeleton 2, to say that we do not know its anatomical nature, since their extremities have only recovered inferiors. In the excavation of the sounding, in his starting phase, they were the tibias and perones within the cut, reason why we estimated that when extending the sounding by the north, we would find the rest of the skeleton. This circumstance did not get to take place, not being able to assign these rests to a more complete skeleton. Now clearly that could just be an issue with the translation, but it nonetheless added to the disquiet that I was feeling, and seemed to imply that everything had been done in a rush. The report seemed to suggest that these men had also been killed in an explosion, um, and that would certainly explain the posture of individual 1, and perhaps individual 5's loss of limbs, and that would also account for the fact that they had been abandoned where they fell, with the shovel lying underneath individual four. However, when you look at these men side by side, something is very noticeable in terms of the similarity of how they're lying. They're all on their backs. Bodies do the most bizarre thing in death. Soldiers' accounts are full of all kinds of odd movements that they saw their comrades make in death. Some collapse like puppets with their strings cut. Officer Thomas Brown described... Uh, dying men flapping around in circles like dying birds. Certainly badly wounded men don't lie straight out on the ground. They crawl away on their fronts. In essence, then, the odds of all five of our soldiers lying flat on their backs in the moment of death is so remote that it's just not feasible. We do know 
that the men that men were left where they fell in battle. When Wellington's retreating army arrived in November 1812 at the location where they'd fought the Battle of Salamanca in July earlier that year, they literally camped amongst the bones of the fallen. Whilst officers were often given the dignity of a proper, if hurried, funeral service, especially if they were popular, the rank and file were lucky to have a handful of earth thrown over them. John Cooper recalled how he and his comrades buried a soldier in a dunghill. We also know there were major issues uh, in Burgos of bodies not having been buried, as inhabitants complained to the French after the winter thaw in 1813, when the bodies started smelling, although the French told the locals that it was their problem to deal with. However, when I showed these images to Southampton Uni's resident osteoarchaeologist, Professor Sonia Zakchevsky, she pointed out the individual four, the very one who we thought had definitely been left where he fell because of the shovel underneath him, has an unusual arrangement of his feet. His feet are positioned on top of one another, something which is consistent with other digs that she's done, where they found that grave, dug grave diggers have discovered in the process of burial that the hole that they've dug isn't quite big enough for the body, and so they squashed two feet on top of one rather than spend the, the time and the effort in digging out more of a grave. Equally, when looking at individual one, it was noticeable that the feet are laid out in the classic pose that you would expect of someone who'd been laid out to be buried. The overall result, therefore, is that there are inconsistencies that need to be addressed here. Had the dig been done in a rush, with pressures on time, meaning that there wasn't uh, sufficient time put into a more thorough investigation. There is evidence from other digs conducted at other locations around Burgos that suggest, and I have to heavily emphasise the suggest here so that I can't be sued, that human remains which were discovered during building projects were ignored and discarded in order to not compromise the building deadlines. Finding dead bodies generates a lot of paperwork and delays, as police, forensics and archaeologists all have to be brought in. I'm not actually the first person to have an interest in these soldiers. Back in 2010, the respected Peninsula War scholar Professor Ed Koss from the United States Commander General Staff College approached the Smithsonian Institute's osteoarchaeologists about studying these remains, remains fully um, and put together a package which included oxygen isotope testing, full scans and analysis of the remains, and even talk about facial reconstruction. Despite a letter of commitment from the Smithsonian Institute to carry out the analysis, the project hit the perennial problem that, dug, that dogs all academic research, getting funding. The amount needed was actually minimal. The Smithsonian had agreed to waive their usual fees, meaning that all that was needed was around £1,500 to fly the remains to Washington DC and back so that they could be analysed in the Smithsonian's labs. In the difficult economic times of the early 2010s though, the money simply could not be found and the project had to be shelved when the ill health of a leading team member intervened. And so it seemed that these soldiers would lie forgotten in Burgos City Museum in the same way that they had outside the walls of Burgos Fortress. This time last year, however, all of that changed. In the process of working with Professor Koss on a separate project for a conference, he and I started talking about these remains. Within five minutes, I was hooked and decided to take on the project. Yet with a new coordinator taking up the project in a new decade came new challenges. It rapidly became apparent that virtually nothing had been written in English about these remains. We have just one conference paper, which amounts to 12 pages, and a few pages in Charles Esdale's 2015 publication, Burgos in the Peninsula War. 
And as you've heard already, when I started looking closely at the available information, even what we thought we knew didn't properly match up with the evidence. As with any piece of research, the best thing you can do is to go back to the original sources of information. In this case, we're talking about an archaeological report. And after months of hunting, I finally managed to track down the original, all 680 pages of it, entirely in Spanish, which I'm not fluent in. From Fortunately, with a bit of Spanglish and with a lot of help from a friend and colleague in Spain, Dr. Silvio Gregorio Sainz, we've been able to piece the truth together. The report is quite partisan to the Spanish side in places, describing the siege as Castaños's uh, siege of Burgos. In reality, whilst the Spanish general Castaños did bring troops to support the siege, it was Wellington's operation. It turns out that the fears about the dig being rushed weren't entirely unfounded. The report is very open about the fact that there was very little funding and that time pressures were intense. The report actually concludes that there may be the bones of as many as 12 individuals discovered. However, the report itself only details the specifics of six skeletons, with the remaining bones being, we think, small fragments. Given the obvious difficulties of the current international situation, there isn't any other information that we can currently get on the fragments of those other six which aren't mentioned, though trying to work out what we are dealing with when it comes to those other remains is a top priority. The report is also quite frank about the fact that it believes there may be other soldiers in the area. Due to money and time constraints, they never examined the entire region and were not able to extend the trenches on the off chance of searching for more soldiers. The trench was extended slightly, though, to recover the additional remains of individual two, although very else, little else was recovered besides a few shards of bone from the lower leg. So in light of all of this, what do we actually plan to do? And crucially, what do we hope to learn? Well, initially, the plan was to dig the area properly, find the other soldiers that the report seemed to think were there, and recover them before starting a proper study of all of the remains that we could find. That hit ethical problems early on, though. UK Research ethic board, Ethics Boards do not deem it to be ethical to go prospecting for dead bodies, and remains should only be recovered if found by accident unless you're trying to locate significant royal burials, such as Richard III. Quite simply, you won't get the permits for such work, and you won't get the funding for it either. Whilst we are holding discussions about some potential benefits to a dig elsewhere in the fortress complex, that has now become a separate entity from the study of the remains. A lot of questions also clearly need to be answered. Who were these soldiers? Where did they come from? How did they die? We have causes of death for some, but others are a mystery, and as I've outlined, there are all kinds of contradictory pieces of evidence. Through a detailed examination of every skeleton, you can start to work out the cause of death, but also start to secure answers to more detailed questions, particularly about the physical well-being of these men. And it's at this point that we start to tap into much bigger discussions that are going on in scholarly research. What toll was war taking on these men? The work of Ed Koss has shown that, nutritionally, the rations which the men were supposed to receive were woefully inadequate for the tasks that they had to carry out. Their calorie intake alone was far below what they needed. What impact, if any, was that having on their bodies? If there's no evidence of malnutrition, does that therefore indicate that the plundering that was so rife in the army during this period was enough to sustain them?
By analysing their bones, we can start to work out these men's diets, and that in turn tells us something about their lifestyle, particularly as they were growing up. Bone density analysis through DEXA scanning of a well-preserved femur can be used to help assess whether undernutrition or low bone mass were present in the individual at the time of their death. Bones and teeth can be used to detect changes that indicate infectious diseases through abnormal bone loss or abnormal bone formation even, as well as looking at degenerative changes, trauma and even tumours. With the teeth, osteoarchaeologists can identify pre- and post-mortem tooth loss, abscesses, dental diseases, i.e. issues inside the tooth as well as in the root, tooth deformation through repetitive tasks such as biting bullet casings and dental wear, with x-rays generally being used to help confirm those observations. The build-up of certain types of metal in the bones can also be analysed to show if the use of heavy metals for medicinal purposes, occupation exposure or accidental ingestion through other means such as the use of pewter or handling of lead bullets was impacting on these men's bodies. But I'm determined that we will go one stage further because the returns of the dead that I mentioned earlier don't just list their names and how they died. They list their places of birth and their occupation, and these men's bones will bear the marks of where they grew up. For a number of years now, the word isotope has been the hot topic amongst archaeologists. Isotopes are variations in elements. Instead of being universal, elements have subtle atomic variations, which are often unique to specific areas. The best known of the isotopes that archaeologists analyse is strontium. Strontium builds up in the tooth enamel during childhood and stays there throughout an individual's life. It also builds up in the bones but only actually shows the last 7-10 to 10 years of that person's life. And strontium varies in different regions, finding its way into the body through plants absorbing the mineral from the soil which humans then eat. As a result, teeth provide a snapshot of where you grew up and we can cross-reference that information with the information from the casualty returns. However, we can narrow this down even further with analysis of oxygen isotopes, which are absorbed from drinking groundwater, and nitrogen. Collectively, we can also use this information to work out a bit more about their diet. And equally, by taking cranial measurements, you can feed that information into an existing database to work out the regional origin of each individual. And collectively, when you build up that entire bank of information, you start to narrow down the area where this person grew up quite considerably. There's also a phenomenon called archaeogenetics. It's generally uh, used to refer to the study of ancient DNA, but using the same techniques we can start to trace the origins of these men. Just as people today can discover their DNA ancestry, we can use DNA analysis to trace both the national and regional identities of these men. In all honesty, there's no way of knowing what discoveries will come out of this research. Wellington's army was an international force, made up not only of British, Spanish and Portuguese troops, but also of Germans and even French. Even if it does turn out to be as simple as them all being British, there are all kinds of questions about their nationality, as research by Jim Deary has actually shown that even in English regiments, as much as a third of the unit tended to consist of Irishmen. Yet inevitably, making all of this happen is not quite as simple as it sounds. Quite recently, I managed to finally re-establish contact with the Smithsonian, only to find that they simply do not have the space in their schedule to conduct the analysis they once planned to do. In the process, therefore, 
that fee waiver has of course gone. That means that money needs to be found. Studying a skeleton, including isotope analysis, has a going rate of £500 and takes around four hours of lab time, plus post-lab evaluation of the evidence. But DNA is much more expensive. The new plan is to actually briefly repatriate these men, as I'm in discussion with the University of Southampton about having them analysed in their archaeology department on Avenue campus. DNA analysis would have to be organised through laboratories in Oxford, but the fact remains that it is still feasible, and crucially the money does not have to be found to fly these bones to Washington DC, which means that some of it can then be reinvested into the research, which is likely to cost somewhere around £5,000. With such a hefty price tag, there's an obvious question of whether this is worth doing. No research in universities is ever done if it can't meet strict ethical guidelines, and also answering the all-important question of so what, which I've tried to answer in part earlier on in this piece. Yet in some ways, this project is not actually academic in the true sense of the term. A number of colleagues have asked me, so what do you personally want to get out of this project? But actually, that's not the point of all of this. This project will always be dominated by the very obvious human element here, that these men fought and died for their country, and that therefore, by any moral measure, they deserve better than to be abandoned on a shelf in a museum storage complex. My goal will always be that the men get the burial in marked graves with full military honours that they, and in truth so many others, deserve. Bizarrely, arranging the burial of these men is actually far more of a headache than transporting them across a continent and analysing them, primarily due to the expense, but also due to the logistics. These men are technically the property of Burgos City Museum, irrespective of the fact that they have no practical use for them. Stage one is therefore to negotiate their release for burial, and this will be a condition of the agreement that we reach when we offer to study these remains for the museum. By finding out everything that we can humanly know about these men, we remove any practical reason for the bones to remain in storage. With that accomplished, the next hurdle will be cost. Burials are hugely expensive. They say that the average funeral costs around £3,000 in the UK, and we're looking at organising five or six. Coffins alone will cost three grand in total. Headstones, another 11000 and that's before we buy the burial plots or arrange the service. The plan on burial is therefore a two-pronged approach. With the study of the remains completed, we will have the means of engaging the public with these men's stories, which will be used to generate a crowdfunding bid, and in fact we've already had a commitment of £500 towards that from an anonymous donor. We will also be applying to philanthropic initiatives and organisations that specialise in military history and commemoration for grants to make this happen. What is of course hugely frustrating is the fact that if these men had died since 1914, none of this would be necessary. The Commonwealth War Graves Commission would have stepped in, done all of the relevant analysis to identify these men and their cause of death before funding their burial with full military honours in one of their immaculately maintained cemeteries. As they had the misfortune to die in what is in effect the wrong conflict, the CWGC have no interest, and believe me, I have tried. Yet despite these challenges, the Bones of Burgos project is on the cusp of success. With agreements being negotiated with the University of Southampton and the Burgos City Museum and discussions with partial funding for Stage 1 of the project currently being underway with a number of funding bodies, 
New life is being breathed into a project which had been passed off as impossible. More than 200 years on, the bones of Burgos will disprove that old claim that dead men tell no tales, and Wellington's forgotten unknown warriors will finally receive the recognition, respect and dignity that they deserve. After all that, I'm going to open it straight out to questions on the forum. If you have any queries, please do get in touch. You know the format by now, www.thenapoleonicwars.net forward slash forum. You can also contact me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory using the hashtag Napoleonicist. I'll be back in June with material on the Battle of Waterloo and on nationalism and morale in the British Army. Until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care, my friends. Stay well. Stay safe, stay kind, and as always, thanks for listening.